Wildfires may break out in really remote places where you can't just drive up in a fire truck. The key is to keep those fires from spreading towards people. That's where smoke jumpers come in. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis tells us what they're up against. Just to so you know, I got here yesterday, so <laughs> I'm just kind of uh, getting my feels around here. So at the Grand Junction Air Center, Chelsea Koff gives me a tour of her new base camp. We can jump at higher wind speeds with these parachutes, and that's kind Koff of is a smoke jumper in her third fire season. She's specially trained to parachute into remote areas with 80 pounds of gear to fight wildfires in their early stages. In her personal bag is a small tent, a toothbrush, food, and water. She has to be self-sufficient for the first 72 hours once she hits the ground. We try to be really low maintenance, try to get the job done, try to put out these tiny fires without having to call in a lot of support. The rest of the region's working on usually big incidents, and they don't want to have to deal with these smaller things. That That's kind of our responsibility. Without those extra resources, the smoke jumpers fight the flames by creating a fire line by hand. They cut down trees, clear flammable material, and dig a border down to the dirt to keep the fire from being able to spread. Koff says even once the flames are out, the team usually stays overnight to keep an eye on the situation. We'll actually get down on hands and knees and kind of climb through the dirt just to feel around and make sure that fire is not getting down into the root system because that can happen often and then it'll rekindle, especially with the winds that, that we're getting down here that can push fires and just... Reignite. And if the smoke jumpers need to stay longer, supplies are dropped in to keep them supported for a week or more. On the tarmac sits the plane. It's stocked and ready with boxes of food and tools that are thrown out the door along with a team of jumpers. Rudy Schlazing is the pilot of the de Havilland Twin Otter. It's really the perfect airplane for a smoke jumper operation because it can carry a lot of weight at very slow speed. Schlazing says the slow speed lets jumpers land more accurately, and the plane can take off and land in the backcountry with little runway. He says he's been flying this plane for a long time, that he can do it with his eyes closed. But this is his first fire season, and he says it's been challenging. Now I got nine fires behind me, so I'm... Uh pretty uh, confident on what I'm doing. (laughs) Koff and her team were brought in from Montana to Grand Junction as extra support for the region's busy fire season. This fire management unit doesn't just help the western slope. It also covers parts of Wyoming and Utah. And if a fire is too hard to control from the ground, smoke jumpers can call in reinforcements, more firefighters or planes to drop retardant. Jake Lloyd is the assistant air tanker base manager. Normally we kind of nickel and dime retardant and retardant drop, you know, maybe one one week and two, two weeks later. But we started Saturday Memorial Day weekend and pretty much haven't stopped since. So it's kind of impressive right now. On the wall behind Lloyd is a whiteboard with a list of all the fires the aviation crew has worked on this year. And the list is full. Alex here is currently typing that list up so we can make a printout and erase that and start over. 2012 was our last busiest season until this year. And it doesn't look like things will get easier. Adam Gaydon is the air tanker base manager and has been for the last 18 years. He says they have far fewer resources than they've had in the past. As planes have aged, they've been dropped from the fleet. When I started here, we had 44 heavy air tankers in the fleet. And now we're up to 18 to 20 when we bring on the call when needed. It's definitely a smaller, heavy air tanker fleet and a lot more folks fighting for the resources. Fighting for those resources because those heavy air tankers are used across the U.S. Gaydon says some states, like California, need a lot of help. The heavy air tankers are working year-round now. Their season starts in January and ends in December. It's hard on those guys. They do a lot of flying. And for Chelsea Koff, 
that means a lot of jumping. I think getting into wildfire was a guarantee that I would spend the majority of my time outside and uh, also just being able to have a big challenge. A challenge that seems to be only getting bigger. Colorado's Fire Prevention Agency says if drought and weather trends continue, they expect a major increase in wildfire activity over the next 30 years. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Airplanes are often used to fight fires, but how about to study them? A team of scientists is going airborne to analyze smoke from wildfires to figure out what's in the air we Westerners are breathing. The plane is equipped with a bunch of special instruments. Emily Fisher leads the project. She's an assistant professor at Colorado State University, and this research has taken her to Idaho. She's on the phone with us. Hi, Emily. Hi. You just took the first flight in the Boise area, I think Tuesday. How'd it go? It went very well. We went up to the Rattlesnake Fire, which is about a 30-minute flight north of Boise, and we sampled that smoke for about four hours. For about four hours? My goodness, was the cabin of the plane very smoky? Actually, it wasn't. It was It was surprisingly unsmoky in the cabin of the plane. Is it filtered? The visibility was very, very low. It was, it was very clear we were in smoke. It was very clear you were in smoke. Uh, that sounds like yeah. not a fun thing to do. Who... Who in their right mind would want to fly over fires and through smoky conditions you can barely see through? What's the goal here? Yeah, so our goal is to better understand the chemistry or the composition of wildfire smoke. There's thousands of different chemicals in wildfire smoke, and in order to thoroughly sample that, you have to go into it. We fly in a zigzag pattern downwind of the fire so that we cross the smoke plume many times, and we we do that starting as close as we can get to the fire itself. And we were able to track somewhere between four and five hours of aging of that smoke in the atmosphere. Of aging of that smoke? Mm -hmm. You know, as I said, there's thousands of different chemicals in smoke, and each one behaves differently. So from its point of emission into the atmosphere, as time passes, each one will evolve differently. And this could affect my health. Right. Smoke has large ramifications for air quality. It increases asthma hospitalizations, for example, very clearly. But we're measuring a a wide variety of things, um, much more than is measured at routine air quality monitoring sites. You're in a C-130, I understand. We are in a C-130, and it's it's the perfect plane for this kind of work because there's a lot of space in it for instrumentation. And so what's really um, great about our study is just how many different types of things we're able to measure from that plane. So the plane, you can think of as a flying laboratory, and we have a bunch of little tubes sticking out the plane, and we suck the smoke into the plane in those tubes, and they go straight into a bunch of different instruments. How many scientists can fit onto a, this C-130? Um, we have, I got to count the seats in the back off the top of my head, but we're running about some about 15. Oh, my goodness. Okay, it's a large team flying up there. Oh, is- yeah, this is a huge team. This is a huge team, and it crosses um, multiple universities. When I think of wildfires, I just think of trees burning up. Mm-hmm. Is it really that big a mystery, in other words? Well... There just haven't been that many measurements of actual wildfires in our area with this level of chemical specificity. Is it rough up there? Yeah, a little bit. The roughness depended a lot on altitude. So when we got down into the smoke, into the boundary layer where it's well mixed, then, yeah, it's it's bumpy. Gosh, and 
<laughs> uh, did that make you nervous? Uh, there's lots of things to be nervous about with this project, but that mostly makes you sick. That mostly makes you sick. Okay. What else is there to be nervous about? There's, it's pretty complicated logistics. You know, we're taking great care just to make sure that we're out of the way of any firefighting aircraft. We try to stay well out of the way of that. And also, you know, it is just, I don't know if nervous is quite the right word, but you think about it when you can't see below you or above you. Oh, my goodness. It's a pretty special pilot that would have to be behind the yeah, controls. Yeah, are absolutely awesome. Uh, for lack of a better turn of phrase here, your burning question, I understand, has to do with nitrogen. Why is nitrogen important? It's something that wildfires emit, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Nitrogen is a very important component of wildfire smoke because how that nitrogen behaves, um, whether it's a gas or a solid, and what exact chemical form it's in, influences the air quality downwind and also how nitrogen is deposited back into ecosystems. Because the nitrogen might fall back down into water or soil. Yeah, exactly. You can think about it that way. Um, Or you can think about it as sometimes if you have a big smoke plume, like from Washington or Oregon, why that plume can contribute to ground-level ozone in the Colorado Front Range. Many, many miles away. Right, exactly, exactly. So that's one of my burning science questions. And We're also working on how wildfire smoke plumes affect the behavior and formation of clouds. Interesting. So wildfires contribute to the formation of some kinds of clouds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or they can change the way those clouds form. And that's a, there's so very few samples of smoke mixing with clouds that we're really excited to sort of push that science forward and, and figure out what that looks like chemically when that happens. Is your family worried about you? Oh my gosh, uh, my family's here with me in Boise, actually. I don't think this is the most worrying thing that I do. <laughs> Wait, what is? <laughs> I'm probably biking to work all the time. Okay. But, um, but everyone asks me that question, and that just makes me more nervous. Okay. You know, you're like, why? You're like, why is it? You're like, is it, should I be worried? Everyone else seems to be worried. <laughs> but we have really excellent pilots. So, And, you know, yesterday when we couldn't see, we just moved up in altitude. Right. So constantly making decisions from the cockpit to make make it work. Well, I will uh, stop harping on this point and wish you the best. Thanks. Thanks, Emily, for being with us. (laughs) No problem. Have a good day. Emily Fisher is an atmospheric scientist at Colorado State University. She leads a team of scientists flying over wildfires to learn what's in the smoke. They're in Idaho right now. We'll have pictures of the plane at CPR dot (laughs) org. We continue to follow plans to move the headquarters of the Bureau of Land Management to the west, possibly to Colorado. The question remains, which location will win out? Dan Boyce looks at how this state stacks up. When it comes to outdoorness and westernness, there's a lot of it on display this week. I'm here at the Outdoor Retailer Trade Show, and boy, all the big names are here. The North Face, Solomon Skis, Thermarest over there, Pelican, Keen, Mountain Hardware, and of course, the city of Grand Junction. The most common question is, why are you guys here? That's Robin Brown from the Grand Junction Economic Partnership. They're here not only to recruit businesses, but to sell the city. Grand Junction has been making headlines recently as a possible location for a new Western BLM headquarters. 
The city may be one of the smallest in contention, but Brown says they're competitive with highway infrastructure, high-speed internet access, and more. It's not a pie-in-the-sky, man, we really wish we could have the BLM headquarters. It makes perfect sense. The way she puts it, Grand Junction is hours closer to actual BLM lands than Colorado's Front Range. And the city has some economic momentum. Example, the recent relocation of vehicle rack company Rocky Mounts from Boulder. But this potential BLM headquarters with about 500 employees? Probably our number one prospect at this point. Brown and other Grand Junction representatives, even Governor Hickenlooper, have met with top brass at the Interior Department about a possible move. Brown says Grand Junction's quality of life and affordability is very important to Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. His priority is that um, wherever the BLM headquarters goes, he wants his employees to be able to buy a home and immerse themselves in the community. And while Grand Junction's airport may not have any direct flights to Washington, D.C., Brown says they can work on that. Boosters from another western city realize their flight status could also be a problem. Charity Nelson, I'm the director of economic development at the Boise Valley Economic Partnership. We don't have direct flights to the east, so that is that is always an issue. The airport aside, Boise has been making a lot of top 10 lists lately for work-life balance and a thriving local economy. Idaho is also about 60% public land, nearly twice Colorado's percentage. Still, Nelson has a lot of experience trying to bring new employers to her city, and she says each situation is different. Some companies want a bigger city. Others want to be a big fish in a smaller pond. What's the technical expertise of the local population? These kinds of things. Every company has things that are more critical for them, and so they're going to weight all of the different criteria slightly differently, and sometimes that plays in your favor, and sometimes it doesn't. Boise has not yet been approached, nor made any presentations to the Interior Department, But there are people in Salt Lake City at work on this. Val Hale is the executive director of the Utah Governor's Office of Economic Development. And when I ask him where the BLM should land... If they were completely objective, it would be fairly easy to answer that question. He says Salt Lake City is one of the largest contenders and clearly the best. The state does have a slightly higher public land percentage than even Idaho. Great quality of life, high-speed internet access, all the rest... And then there's the airport. Salt Lake International Airport is undergoing a $3.2 billion expansion. And it already has plenty of direct flights to D.C. However, as confident as Hale is about what he sees as the objective advantages of Salt Lake City, he says with decisions like this, subjectivity is bound to come into play. You know, somebody likes a particular area or state. And Hale says he doesn't know the key players in the Department of the Interior who will have the most sway with Secretary Zinke or President Trump. No, While Denver is also mentioned as a possible contender, Grand Junction has been specifically mentioned by Republicans Senator Cory Gardner and Representative Scott Tipton as a preferred location The two proposed a measure last year to move the headquarters to one of 12 western states. At the outdoor retailer trade show, Robin Brown says regardless of whether Grand Junction is selected, it's an honor to be nominated. To be the name that, you know, the city that pops up at the top of the BLM conversation is wonderful for us. Anything to get the word out, right? Members of the Colorado congressional delegation say the BLM will assess the location of the new headquarters over the next six to eight months. Dan Boyce, CPR News. 
A message now for parents yelling at your high schoolers to put down the video game controllers. You may want to reconsider. Reading, writing, and arithmetic aren't the only ways to get into college. There's also eSports, as in video game competition. Electronic battles like this are part of what Forbes magazine says is a multi-billion dollar industry, with colleges and universities even offering scholarships to gamers. Well, on Saturday, competitors will hit Denver's Performing Arts Complex for the Red Bull Conquest, part of a nationwide competition. And among them will be Mia Yuwanowicz. She's a 16-year-old from Englewood who's making quite a name for herself in video game competition. Welcome to the show, Mia. Hi, it's nice to meet everybody. I'm glad to be here, and uh, it's nice to meet you too, Ryan. Nice to meet you. I understand that a lot of gamers have nicknames that they compete under. What is yours? Uh, I go by Pit Viper. Pit Viper. Mm-hmm. Okay, sounds pretty menacing. Uh, how did you come up with that? Um, I don't know. It's just kind of something I thought sounded cool. Um, it came from a game called... Um, Trails Fusion, actually, it was the name of a bike that was in there. I just thought it was really cool, so I just kind of went with that. So, And uh, your friends refer to you as Pit Viper? Uh, they call me Pit for short, actually. For Pit, okay. Uh, you're part of a pretty big wave. Uh, according to Syracuse University, more than 250 million people follow esports competitions. Experts say that by 2020, 70 million people will watch an esports final By the way, that's more than the viewership for Major League Baseball or the National Hockey League. And companies like Red Bull and Mercedes are sponsoring leagues and events, uh, kind of like the one you're competing in this weekend. How did you get started in esports? Well, it all started with me watching the recap of EVO 2015. It was when Nobi um, was going up against Al and Nobi had won the championship series. Um, I remember seeing the excitement from the crowd, um, and then that just kind of inspired me to want to go out and, you know, bring that kind of hype within my game. So were you watching on television or...? Uh, I was watching the Twitch stream. Okay, the Twitch stream. Got it. And I understand that your father also played a role in your introduction to video games. That's a funny story, actually. It's kind of the reason how I found Tekken. So he was playing the arcade mode of Street Fighter IV. Tekken is is a game... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, it's the game that you'll be playing this weekend, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot of terms will be flying at us. I'll try to explain them as we go along. But back to the story of your father. Um, well, I mean, he's an old school gamer. Um, he's done it all his life, really. I guess you can call him an OG of his own. <laughs> an OG? Okay. Um, you know, he's been through consoles such as Atari, you know, the first PlayStation console. He's been through all the Sega generations and stuff like that. Um, you know, and he still today plays video games. And he had you play alongside him at a certain point? Um, I believe me and him were playing Sh- Street Fighter. I'm not sure. Sh- I don't exactly remember which one it was, but, you know, me and him would go at it for fun. And, you know, like I beat him, I guess. So <laughs> then came the day you beat him. Well, Donald, mm-hmm. you're actually in our studio. You are her father. And do you remember that first time she beat you? Oh, pretty much, Ryan. Um, what it was, it was uh, in one of my older consoles, a PlayStation 3 console. And I downloaded a, uh, it was Tekken Tag Tournament. 
Oh, that's what it was. That's what it was. He was a little <laughs> young back then, honey. It was like back in 2013, exactly, because I was I just moved to New York City at that time. And me and her just played a few rounds. Um, you know, she, she beat me quite a few times. And from there, she's been picking it up. You know, she's been playing the game and getting better and better and better. This and is when she was about 11. About 11 years old. Okay. How did that feel to get beaten by an 11-year-old? Well, uh, kind of bad, you know, when you're <laughs> a veteran like I am, you oh. know. And this little kid, just especially your own daughter, is beating you at your own game. So you want to know what? I was, I was proud of her. You, you were know? proud of her. So now um, she likes to... She I think got... one of your devices is on, so we're hearing that in the background. Uh, but of course I'd expect you to have devices in our studio. Yeah, you're, you're they're so taking plug- over the world today. You're so plugged in. So this this weekend, Mia, you'll compete in Tekken 7. This is a fighting game. And I understand that to prepare, you go to something called a Tekken house. What's that? Um, well, it's basically just a group of people that come to our main event, Akihabara Arcade in Westminster. Um, they all gather there um, a day before the actual tournament down in Westminster, and they'll train with each other. You know, they'll give each other tips about the game. Uh, they'll address certain situations that they're struggling with. It's just kind of something that we use as a home base, you know, to address what exactly we want to focus on. And this is a game in which you choose your character, your fighter, correct? Mm-hmm. And I gather that fighter has special powers or abilities, so there must be some strategy in picking which character uh, you play with. Um, well, right now I'm only using two characters, which is Lucky Chloe and Dragonov. Um, Chloe being my most comfortable character, considering the fact that she's my main. Um, so usually what I do is, when I'm unfamiliar with my opponent, what they're going to do, I go with my main character, my most comfortable, Chloe. Um, and then if I see that they kind of know the matchup against Chloe, they know how to fight against her back turn stance and stuff like that, then I'll switch to Dragonov. You know, he's more down to earth. Okay. He doesn't have to take as many risks as Chloe does. And and so you get to know their characters, truly like the, the, the their character of these characters. Um, how long do you spend each day playing video games? Um, on a weekday, it depends because I am homeschooled and I have to, you know, address that first. Um, so it depends on what I do after school. Um, if I'm not doing anything, I say I spend around four to three hours training. Three to four hours training. Donald, how do you feel about that and, and perhaps the violence that she's seeing in these games? Well, Ryan, there's a lot of violence that you see on TV all over the world today. And I don't think gaming is that you know, anything better or anything worse than what you see around the world mm. and on the news that you see. But uh, as long as she's having fun and she's studying, you know, for her education uh, and she, you know, competes at these arcades like uh, Akihabara and you meet a lot of really good people and friends and and so it becomes it's, social. Yeah, it's way. social. You know. As we said earlier, Mia, you're considered an up-and-comer on the esports scene. Uh, this is Jeremy Lopez, who's the host of the Red Bull competitions, talking about your rise. It was pretty unexpected. A, a lot of the times, when it comes to a game like Tekken, it's more legacy-oriented. What that means is uh, you have players who've been playing this game for a very long time and have like established themselves in the scene and had plenty of experience. And Mia came out of the woodwork. Do you have people courting you to sponsor you? Um, 
Well, I mean, I've had UIU approach me in some way, but it doesn't seem like they're really all for it and to sponsor me right now. And I think that's because... What's UIU? UIU is a global sponsorship. Uh, They sponsored many well-known players like Jun Ding, Qdons. There's a few American players as well. Uh, Peeling, for example. Uh, They're just really well-known in the FGC and the FGC is the... There's a lot of acronyms in this world. Uh, the fighting game community. The fighting game community. All right. So you might be on the precipice of sponsorship. I'm also interested to know if you run across many other young women in esports. Um, well, there's quite a few at my scene in Akihabara. Um, but, you know, the ratio for female players isn't as high as male players, obviously. Um but I think that's because there's not enough encouragement for females to play. And, um, you know, I kind of want to encourage that within my gameplay. So that's something that you talk about? Do you talk about it to your other female friends and say you should get involved in this? Uh, I try to, yeah. And they seem pretty interested in the in that fact. Uh, according to Forbes magazine, there are about 80 schools offering scholarships for esports. Is that something you're hoping to achieve, getting a college scholarship to play Tekken 7 or some other game? Um, Well, it's not something I plan to do um, with my future, but, you know, if my skills can take me far enough as, you know, to the point where I can be successful in doing something like that, I'm all for it. Well, thanks for being with us. Nice to have a picture into this world. Good luck. Thank you so much. Mia Yuanovich is a 16-year-old esports gamer from Englewood. Her father, Donald, also joined us. Mia will compete this weekend at the Red Bull Conquest. It's at the Denver Performing Arts Complex. They'd done nothing wrong, and yet they were incarcerated. That sums up how the U.S. treated many Japanese Americans during World War II. We're hearing about that history from the people who lived it in a series called Order 9066. It airs Fridays on CPR, and it includes the story of Bob Fuchigami of Lakewood. He was just 11 when his family was forced to leave their ranch in central California and report to an assembly center. Our own Nathan Heffel met Fuchigami to talk about his time at Colorado's internment camp, known as Amache. He's going to tell us about the three and a half years he spent without his freedom. He was just 11 when his family was forced to leave their ranch in central California and report to an assembly center. you help with that? Yeah. Here. Pulling out a large binder filled with photos and documents about Amache, Fujigami shows me a copy of an official order. It forced him, his family, and anyone of Japanese descent to, quote, be evacuated from the West Coast following the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. So what was it like the day that you had to leave your home? These kinds of orders... It says Civilian Exclusion Order Number yeah, 5. Right, exclusion. This happens to be one of the people in San Francisco, but we had one for Sutter County where we lived. And it's almost like you'd post that on a, on a wall or yeah, something. Yeah, they put them on the you know, telephone poles and things like that. But they told us what we needed to do. They, they gave us uh, well, it was about six days to get rid of everything. And they said, you must do this. And it lists things. It says you must... Only what you could carry. Yeah. 
extra but. clothes, toiletries, and you carry that with you to this this center. Yeah, to the train station. Fuchigami left his home with almost nothing, but the one thing he couldn't leave behind was a bag of marbles. I mean, what else can you carry? Uh, maybe a baseball mitt and the rest of the clothing because you don't know how long you're going to be there or whether they'll have any stores or anything where you can buy anything. They gathered in their own churches and schools and the Japanese themselves cheerfully handled the enormous paperwork involved in the migration. Government agencies helped in a hundred ways. They helped the evacuees find tenants for their farms. They helped businessmen lease, sell, or store their property. This aid was financed by the government, but quick disposal of property often involved financial sacrifice for the evacuees. This propaganda film produced by the U.S. military painted a rosy picture of the so-called Japanese relocation, but the reality was very different. The Fuchigami family made a hasty deal with a local high school teacher to watch over their farm, and they were forced to include a very attractive option to buy. What are you going to do in five days? You've got a ranch with a farm equipment and, you know, you got trucks and cars. And he made so much money the first year, he bought it. He exercises the arrangement. And so we lost everything. I mean, yeah, we lost everything. Fuchigami spent four months at the California Assembly Center before boarding a train, but his parents and seven siblings had no idea where it was headed. You have to be shuttered the windows, you know, the blinds type of thing. They were closed. Yeah, well, and they had guards on there on the the train, and they would enforce that. I mean, uh, I peeked out one time anyway. (laughs) I think I looked out another time. It was in Barstow. And uh, the rest of the time, I mean, they, they kept the things closed, I guess, to whoever was on the other trains heading the other direction wouldn't see who was in there, in the trains. They, they didn't want the public to know what they were doing to us. And because they had so little to go on, every time the train stopped, they held their breath. They let us off the train, and, you know, it was in the middle of that, Judges were somewhere in Arizona, I think, was. It was almost like a potty break. We didn't know why they stopped, but some people thought they were going to get shot, you know. They didn't know why we were stopped out there. Only people with the guns were the armed guards. More than 7,500 Japanese Americans were detained at Amache, living on one square mile surrounded by barbed wire fences and guard towers manned by military police. They were housed in 29 blocks with around 250 people per block. When Fuchigami arrived, his family's small room was bare, with only cots, nothing like home. The only thing uh, they had was uh, uh, one light bulb hanging down. They had a... they had a little stove in the corner. The floor was one one layer of brick on the sand. You know, you lift up the brick, and there, you know, it's, it's a sandy soil. And because we didn't have any water in the in the in the rooms, you had to come and use uh, the, latrine. the latrine. And when they had the latrines, they just had these stools, and 
There was no partition walls or anything. And the women were, were really appalled and just under a great deal of distress because of that kind of a situation. They finally convinced the management to put in some partitions, half partitions. Despite the conditions, they tried to have a normal life. They formed social clubs and sports leagues, and there were stores and even a newspaper. The government did provide some education, but for Fuchigami... I joined the Boy Scouts. What do you do inside of a camp? You, we ended up doing a lot of marching, learning how to march you know, back and forth. Signs of their incarceration were all around. They have these searchlights on the guard towers, and at night, you know, they did, they have random searches. They see somebody, they shine it on you, and they follow you. Know, you just go to the bathroom. You just follow you to the bathroom. You know? The reason they chose Amachi was it's remote, and if you try to escape, where the heck would you go? And then because. We looked like the enemy, although we weren't the enemy. We all knew, we, you know, we, we hadn't done anything, but the public didn't know. And once we put it into the, into the camps, they said, oh, they, they must have really done something wrong to be put in something like that. And so the public was really misguided, you know. Families detained at Amache longed for things they left behind, like family heirlooms. And eventually the government allowed in limited shipments, and Fujigami's mother jumped at the chance. Mom had the trunk from uh, when she came from Japan, and she had put in her valuables, you know, kimonos and stuff. And Mom said she wanted to have some of her things from the trunk. And so we, we had it shipped to us, and when it arrived, it had been broken into, and contents were gone and uh, you know I think that really broke her heart and she had a stroke in the camp and uh, she did recover a little bit but took a long time eventually the government's detention order was lifted and Japanese-Americans were allowed to return home. However, some faced violence, hostility, and burned or looted homes. The final small group remaining at Amache left in October of 1945, with only $25 in their pockets and a one-way train ticket home. At age 15, three and a half years behind barbed wire fences and imposing guard towers, Fuchigami and his family left Amache. I'm sure I've got something... Today, Fuchigami lives at a Lakewood retirement community with his wife, Sally. Their small apartment is lined with bookshelves full of binders on Amache and other incarceration sites around the U.S. Pulling one of the binders from the shelf, Fuchigami shows me his family photos taken after the war. Oh, look at that. That's when I was a kid. Yeah. My father and mother and... One of them, an official Navy photo, and a photo of the ship he served on during the Korean War, serving a country that had in so many ways sure taken much of his childhood. The ship I sailed on. Oh, yeah. This is the ship I sailed on. It says so. The Nelson M. Walker. Yeah. Yeah. 
Fuchigami now gives talks on his time at Amache, and he remembers a question that came from a young black soldier who'd served in the military after 9-11. He said, why in the world, why would you join the Navy after the way they treated you and all that? And I said, that's a really good question. This is the only country I have. I mean, it's, it's my country. You know, it's just like it's your country, you know. Why would you go off and join the military after the way the you know blacks have been treated? People of color have all been treated badly, whether you're talking about Indians or blacks or Mexican or Japanese or Chinese or whatever. If you're not white, you get treated differently at different times. Sitting in his living room with a book he'd love to publish someday, Fuchigami says the story of Japanese-American incarceration during World War II is as important as ever. There's been a lot of interest now because people from Iran or Muslims or, you know, we look at that and we say, hey, that's what they did to us. They target certain populations so we've, we've, well, we've tried to say, hey, you can't do that to them. You did that to us, but now we know better. 88-year-old Bob Fuchigami of Lakewood speaking with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Learn more about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II on Order 9066 from American Public Media. It airs the next few Fridays where you normally hear Colorado Matters. Now, the story of how Lazarus met the destroying angels. Lazarus is amateur mushroom hunter Lazarus Bell of Denver. He found three deadly mushrooms known as destroying angels. They've not been seen in the metro area before. Hi, Lazarus. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Initially, you found two of these mushrooms in an Aurora yard. Uh, Did you know right away what you were looking at and that it was so different? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I knew immediately what they were. How so? You're an amateur mushroom hunter, I understand. Yeah, I like to look for mushrooms to eat. So kind of the first rule of thumb for that is you learn the ones that'll kill you first. Okay. Uh, so you learn the ones not to put in your mouth, and then you learn those really well, and then you can start figuring out which ones are tasty and, you know. In that way, it was very easy to identify these deadly mushrooms. What did they look like when you saw them? Uh, really, really, really bright white, almost neon blue. They're, they're, they're so shockingly white compared to other mushrooms in the area. They stood out. Oh, sure. And you came up upon them. What did you do when you saw them? I did a little happy dance. A little happy. Did you leave them growing? No, I picked them immediately. And why do you do that? Is, is that about a sort of a, a notch in the belt, or is that about... Uh, making sure that they don't kill anyone or what? Yeah, for me, it's more of like a, a, a treasure hunt, uh, you know, sort of playing a video game and you find treasure or loot or whatever. So I saw it and it, it was like such a rare thing. I was so excited that I just jumped and grabbed it. And then secondary, I was like, hey, I should probably make sure that these aren't eaten by people. What happens if people or even animals or eat, animals yeah, sure. eat these? They die. They die. Yeah. There's there's no there's no cure or antidote or uh Liver transplant is okay. the only cure. Okay. Pretty, pretty dramatic yeah. intervention. Pretty dramatic, yeah. There. Uh, this was in someone's yard that you found the yes. first two. It was uh, just in a, uh, on, on the corner street uh, in a lady's yard under an oak tree. How did she feel about you hunting her mushrooms? She, 
She was not super excited that I was there or that the mushroom was there, but uh, she was happy to have it gone. You donated the specimens, did you not? I did, to the Denver Botanic Gardens. And what was their reaction? They were way more excited than me, which I didn't think was possible. <laughs> because they hadn't seen something like this in Metro Denver before? Right, right. But in, in this, that's their life. You know, that's what they do. So you mostly hunt mushrooms, you say, for food. Tell me about how that started. Uh, it really just started as a way for me to um, not be bored while I was out walking around, kind of looking for a business. I, uh, you know, I just kind of walked around and if I saw a, a job that I could do. I would kind of go ring a doorbell or leave a note or something on their thing. And it just got really boring walking around. And I've always loved mushrooms and kind of treasure hunting. I have a uh, metal detector that I play with sometimes. And uh, yeah, so it, it just started off as a as a hobby. Now it's kind of an obsession. You do junk hauling and odd jobs. Yeah. And so you're going from door to door. You're sort of wandering about. And the idea is to add a little bit of... A little bit of fun to that. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So back to these mushrooms destroying angels. Uh, do you know how it got that name? Uh, it's It got that name in particular because it's all white. It's a very all white kind of a top to toe solid white mushroom. And so it kind of looks like an angel in a robe uh, and destroying because it, it, it kills you. For obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. Indeed. And what about the third one? Uh, the third one I found uh, three days later, or uh, just walking, and it was in the same yard under the same tree, uh, and I got back a hold of Denver Botanic Gardens, and they wanted that one too. Oh. What advice, if any, do you have for people who might have these growing in their backyards? Or uh, don't let any don't don't eat them. Don't let kids or pets eat them. If you see them, just pick them and throw them away. They're not dangerous to handle. They're not. You know, it's you really you have to eat it for it to affect you. Are there other mushrooms you're really excited to find? Morals. Morals? Yes. Tell me why. Because uh, they're super yummy and they're hard to find. That's kind of the uh, the connoisseur mushroom hunters. Well, the belites and morals, but morals I'm the most excited about. Tell me more about belites. Uh, those are those big, um, you know, they're real big fleshy ones that grow giant. They grow up in the mountains and around pine trees and stuff. They're, they're particularly uh, sought after also because of how massive and yummy they are. Do you eat them raw? Do you cook them? No, we got to cook them. Yeah. Okay. I hear you might get a mushroom tattoo. I'm definitely getting a mushroom tattoo. Yeah, I've got some really awful tattoos uh, from when I was younger that I am have always wanted to cover up, but I didn't want to just go get a cover up just to you know get something to plastered over it. Will it be of the destroying oh, angel? Oh yeah. Oh, that's sure. okay for sure. Yeah. Why haven't these been seen in the metro area before? I think it's just too cold. Too cold. Yeah, it, it's it's a climate that's not hospitable to this particular type. They're called amanitas. Uh, this uh, particular type of mushroom. Uh, they're you know they're found in California and uh, West Coast and stuff like that. What uh, what advice would you have for people who want to begin mushroom hunting? Just look down when you walk. <laughs> I mean, they're everywhere. People, you know, you kind of take it for granted. You walk around all day. You're looking forward, trying not to trip over stuff, or you're staring at the phone. But if you look, you know, in the grass and around trees and stuff, mushrooms are everywhere. You said that you had taught yourself to recognize the deadly ones. Sure. You did that with some sort of mushroom guide? Yeah, books and, you know, online forums and stuff like that, yeah. And so, in that way, it's it's easily self-taught? Oh, oh, super easy, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks. And uh, I, I suppose you're probably looking for another destroying angel. I'm out on the hunt. On the hunt. He is amateur mushroom collector Lazarus Bell, and he found three deadly destroying angel mushrooms in Metro Denver just last week. We'll put up a photo later today at CPR.org. 
I will not say much about this next piece, except that all the sounds come from a person using nothing but her vocal cords. So here's a couple of the cow calls. Sometimes I feel like I have a superpower because I communicate with them with my voice. So my name is Hannah Holiday. I am a natural voice elk caller. I am the world champion voice elk caller for 2017. And I have been doing elk calling since I was about the age of six. So I tried using the um, reeds that you use to produce the calls, and I just couldn't do it, couldn't manage it. And I watched these old Yellowstone VCR tapes of elk. As many as 8,000 elk winter beneath the majestic Tetons. And I would sit there in the living room and watch these videos and listen to the calls and then I would try to do them and then rewind the video and then try again and I just did it over and over and over again. I was super excited as a kid because I said, yeah, I've got something that my dad can use and I use and something that is a really good tool for hunting. Just coming up on an elk, that's very rare. You want to be able to call, locate that elk and understand if he's with a herd of cows, if he's by himself, and then understand how to actually bring him in with your elk calls. So communicating with them. This is an estrus call. It's made by a cow elk during um, her period of fertility. My all-time favorite experience was actually hunting down in the Gila in New Mexico. Um, We were down in this field, and I decided to do a cow call to see what was in the area, and the cow call sounded like this. So after um, a little while, we heard a response from the north, and those were a bunch of cow calls. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't. We have some from the west, the east, and the north. And next thing I know, I look out in this field, and it's just full of elk. They just all came all around me, and we're just having this social contact. So that that day, no animal was taken. It was just true respect for the communication that was going on there. Those sounds came from the National Park Service, the documentary Yellowstone in Winter, and, of course, Hannah Holiday. It's part of a series we call Wild Tracks about the sounds of the Mountain West. It's produced by Sam Brash. And we'll compile these segments online from bats to sage grouse at CPR.org. Let's close out today's show with music from El Mariachi Juvenil de Bryant Webster. It's the mariachi band based at a Denver elementary school. Founder Pamela Lignan is being inducted this week into the Chicano Music Hall of Fame. Lignan launched the youth ensemble in 2004 with a mission to cherish and preserve mariachi music. Viva 
viva América, consuelo bendito de Dios. Viva México, viva América, sangre por ti daré yo. Soy pura mexicana y nunca me he dejado, si quieren informarse, la historia les dirá. El Mariachi Juvenil de Bryant Webster of Denver, its founder Pamela Lignan is being inducted into Su Teatro's Chicano Music Hall of Fame this week. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio News. Viva México, viva, viva América, viva. consuelo bendito de Dios.